Hey everyone, this is Sina with another episode of Into the Bytecode. My guest today is Varun Srinivasan. Varun is the co-founder of Merkle Manufactory, the company behind the Farcaster protocol and the Warpcast client. So in this conversation, we talk about the thesis behind Farcaster, why a decentralized social network is an important thing to build on the world today. We talk about some of the hard research and engineering problems they've had to grapple with to make that a reality. We also talk about Varun's personal life and work philosophies. We talk about how he grew up in Coimbatore, a city in India that's a center for textile manufacturing, and how that gave him an initial entrepreneurial instinct. We talk about what he learned from years of working at Coinbase. We talk about how he thinks about shipping with speed and with consistency, and how he thinks about planning for the future in an environment where there's a lot of change and uncertainty. I personally have a lot of respect for Varun and also deeply believe in what they're building with Farcaster. And I hope that this conversation gives a small window into how they think about things. With that, I'll leave you to it, and I hope you enjoy. Into the Bytecode is sponsored by Optimism. The Optimism Collective is building the open source modular software project known as the OP Stack, which allows developers to run layer two blockchains while also addressing key governance and economic challenges in the wider ecosystem. Optimism is also leading decentralized grants experiments like retroactive public goods funding, which recently granted 10 million OP to projects across developer tooling, infrastructure, and education. More recently, they had a major milestone by adding Coinbase's blockchain base to also be governed by Optimism governance and also contribute a portion of their sequencer revenues back to the collective. I've known the Optimism team for many years and know that they're dedicated to both scaling Ethereum and extending its ability to build better economic structures. So if you're interested in learning more, whether you want to build something new or you want to apply for grant funding, then I encourage you to check out Optimism at optimism.io. So I, I thought of first question, I think I maybe asked Dan the same question when we talked back in the day, but um, why did you decide to work on this particular problem when I imagine you could have done an, any number of other things? And I'm curious like how that kind of personal idea maze unfolded for you. It's a good question. Um, when I left Coinbase in 2019, I, I originally took some time off. Uh, I was going to take a long time off, maybe a couple of years, but six months passed by and then the pandemic hit and then we were all stuck indoors and I was like, this is a terrible time to be on vacation. I think it's time to go back to building something. And I knew I wanted to start a company. I think I had gone through the, did you, the process. Did, did you have any plans about how you were going to spend those two years before the pandemic hit? Um, my plan was to get as bored as possible. Uh, which is something I hadn't been able to do for a very long time. So it was just like no schedule. Wake up in the morning, follow your curiosity on most days, read a book, uh, write code, play a video game, whatever it was that sort of grabbed my interest, I would just go do it. And I think about six months actually was right. I think given a couple more months, I probably would have started getting really bored at Etsy. So it was the right time to start picking up something. But I almost spent a year figuring out what I wanted to do until we landed on on the Farcaster idea. So the first six months was just spent exploring. 
uh, building a bunch of stuff. I started building things in Ethereum and Rust and Solidity, just learning about different new things that I just hadn't been very active in since at Coinbase, I ended up doing a lot more management stuff. And that was a really fun process. I think I went through the like, let's build trading bots, let's build smart contracts, let's do all of this stuff. And then I reconnected with Dan probably in October of 2019. And we started turning through a bunch of different ideas. And the first one that really lit up for both of us um, after having spent like four months trying out different things was was working on social. Um, I think it really felt like we had found founder market fit because both of us had in a past life built stuff on social networks in college, really gotten like hyped about the potential of social and then kind of saw a lot of that fade away as networks got a lot more closed. And as we talked about it, we got a lot of energy from the fact that one, we both wanted to work on it. Two, it felt like the right point in time. Like when we kind of thought about the technology shifts that were happening with Ethereum and with decentralization, we realized that for the very first time, it was possible to decentralize social networks with a global state instead of federated state, which is kind of how all social networks had approached it before. And that felt like a very, very fundamentally different UX and a point in time. And the last thing that we, we sort of also saw was I think the way people approach social media today is very different than it was like if, even a few years ago. At first, social media was just where you wasted your time and you kind of just like messed around and maybe talked to your friends. And now people are very, very deliberate. They're building their livelihoods on it. They're, they really, really care about the fact that they um, are building a business around this. And so it felt like technology was there, desire to have ownership was there, and we just found the problem space intellectually interesting and it felt like the right thing to embark on. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting, this idea of the technology being ready, because I, I feel like in, in some sense, you know, the platonic ideal of the technology was ready in that we had in that we had distributed states on the Internet. But all of the kind of user experience and the, the last mile of making crypto applications actually have a good user experience, especially for people who aren't crypto natives. I feel like has only clicked together in the last maybe six months to a year. And I feel may maybe this ties into this, this notion of sufficient decentralization that we were going to talk about. Because I think you had this idea of certain parts of this need to be decentralized. And as long as the user has this option to exit and to take their data and their social graph with themselves, then you get all the important parts and we can supplement this with all the kind of amazing kind of uh, product experiences that you can build with this client server stack that's evolved with the web over over the last many years. So I guess how how did, how did you guys think about this closing the gap to users being able to use a social network? It's a good question. I think so when we when we kind of looked at like all the social networks that had been tried and built, and there were a lot of really cool projects, right? From Diaspora back in 2013, if you remember that totally. to Activity Pub, to some more esoteric ones like Secure Scuttlebutt, which we drew a lot of inspiration from. I think the the first big user experience challenge everyone ran into was nobody had global usernames. So it was this idea that like you had a username that lived on a server, you would have to figure out where which server someone was on and then go and interact with them. And that was a really messy process, right? And and fundamentally on the internet, there was no global centralized state. Like maybe DNS was kind of the closest you got to that. But for the most part, it was like pick your server and then have your adventure and maybe connect up with other servers. Ethereum, I think, solved that. It turned it from like hard computer science problem to now you have a contract like DNS that where you can have 
uh, your entire namespace and you can refer to someone by their at name, like at Alice or Bob, and you know exactly who you're referring to. So that felt like it had sort of got this like huge step up in terms of user experience. The second thing, and, and sort of crypto, Ethereum and Bitcoin hadn't solved this directly, but gave us the inspiration to do it, was until then, everyone sort of assumed, hey, users need to be able to store as much data as they like, and it all needs to be on these separate servers, and that's how the world will interact. In fact, if you look at the original sufficient decentralization blog post, that's actually the original POV we had. But what we quickly realized on building some of this stuff was that's actually a really messy developer experience. Imagine a world where you're trying to build a social app and you have to go crawl 500 different servers that all have different response times, that all have different data, some of which might even be malformed or corrupted. It becomes like nearly impossible to build an indexer to crawl all of this stuff. You're basically asking each app developer to go and reinvent build Google. Build Google. Uh, at some scale, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we said was like, okay, like ETH and Bitcoin have actually managed to figure out this idea that the entire ledger can be stored on one device. And the way they do it is by imposing constraints on what you can do and adding some limitations. Could we do the same thing for social and make it so that you run a single node or a single hub, as we call it, and you immediately get, or at least within an hour, get a copy of the entire network state. So now you can go and start building apps on top of it. And so those are the two big user unlocks. I would say one is for end users and one is for developers that I think makes our approach like fundamentally different from a lot of the uh, networks that came before us. Hmm. Interesting. So the, the identity namespace problem was solved by ha being able to have a registry on Ethereum. So that, that problem's almost solved out of the box. Though I know you, you have a bunch of like kind of uh, elegant constructs around that also with this idea of the FID and the F name and allowing That's people right. to kind of connect them to each other. Um, I don't know, maybe if you want to talk about that, because I, I, I find that to be pretty interesting also. And it, it's another place where you give the user sovereignty and autonomy while solving for user experience and convenience. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good point. And it's something we thought about a lot in the early network design. So on a lot of social networks, your username is your identity, like the app name is who you are. But the reality of it is people end up changing their app names during the life cycle of using their account, maybe once, maybe twice. Some people want a shorter name. Some people decide to sell their name because they're no longer using the platform. And especially in crypto, I think this is an important part of the thesis is like you acquire something, it's valuable to you. And when you no longer want it, you can kind of sell it or give it away in a marketplace. And we knew that was behavior people were going to want to do. But on a social network, this is a really weird thing, because let's say I've built up a huge following. When I sell my ID, I don't want all my followers to then follow this new person. What if this person's a scammer? What if they do something that I don't agree with? I actually want to like have a clean reset. And so we introduced this idea of like accounts and names where the account is just this sort of like mostly meaningless number that you have and all your followers, all your relationship, your social graph is attached to this number. And you generally just keep this number for life. It's not anything special. Nobody really cares about it that much. But at any point you can attach a name to this number or this FID and that becomes your username. And if you decide to give it away and change it, you know, we let you do it like once a week or so, uh, but it preserves all your relationships and all your followers. So you can effectively change your username or switch between namespaces, right? You could use ENS one day and you could then go to an L2 ENS or you could even use a different namespace in the future without losing your social graph. And that seemed like an important bet to make because it, it allowed people to be flexible with the names that they get to use. Totally. Okay, and then so hubs, what was the big evolution in hubs? Because at first you, at first the idea was that each user's I guess maybe I'll, I'll let you explain it rather than sure. stumble my way through it. 
Totally. So Farcaster v1, we basically said everyone's got their own like sort of server. We call this your, your server in the cloud where you store your social data. And you could either join a big server that someone ran for you, or you could literally run your own server in your box, and it would sort of connect to some central registry and all these servers would discover each other. And, you know, for all the reasons we just discussed with the indexing problem, that ended up getting painful as other people were building apps. And so the insight that we had was like, uh, how can we actually get a blockchain-like system uh, where you basically have a single, like, piece of software that you run on your laptop that gets you, like, all the messages that everyone's creating? And the, the immediate problem became, uh, well, social networks operate at a very different scale from like blockchain transactional networks. Like if you look at Twitter, that there's something like 6,000 tweets per second that are getting emitted. And that's like terabytes and terabytes of data being generated every year. And the fastest blockchains we have are like a couple of orders of magnitude off from that. Uh, and, and so there seemed to be this sort of gap. But the cool thing, or the, the important distinction between financial transactions and social transactions that we realized is that uh, ordering really, really matters in financial transactions, and it does not in social transactions. So let's say Alice pays Bob an ETH, and then Bob pays Charlie an ETH. It is very important to know that Alice got that ETH before she paid, uh, or Bob got the ETH before uh, he paid Charlie. Otherwise, you have a double sped problem, and then you have money going missing. And that's we need your we need your uh, stick figures right now to to help clarify the explanation. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we can do an Excalibur podcast one of these days. Yeah, um, but but the the, the so the ordering social... matters a lot for financial transactions. Exactly, and and that's why blockchains really care about how to sequence this thing. If you take all the transactions that happen in a blockchain, you can you can deterministically say this one happened before this one, and that's why this person is allowed to spend this money, and this one happened before this one, and so on, all the way up to the beginning. But with social networks, it turns out that it actually doesn't matter that much. So let's say I I cast something and you reply to my cast, and if an application gets your cast a few seconds before mine, it's fine. It can just say, okay, I know that Varun said something. Uh, I got this reply. Let me wait a few seconds to get it, and then I'll assemble this and show this to a user. And if it's fine, if this cast shows up a couple seconds late. And this relaxation of this constraint allowed us to build a much, much faster network in terms of syncing, where we are able to send messages as they come in in any order and in different orders when clients connect on different servers. So it's this notion, the formal computer science word is like weak eventual consistency and strong eventual consistency. And so we are able to like be more weakly consistent but by doing that, we get significantly higher orders of throughput in terms of how many messages per second we're able to process. And so that's kind of the key architectural difference between a blockchain and what we do, uh, what we do on hubs. We use these, these data structures that we call CRDTs. It's kind of a mouthful, but it's a conflict-free replicated data type. Uh, but a really simple way to think about it is you can give it any two sets of messages in any orders, and no matter what you do, it will always merge them and give you the same state. So no matter how you get the messages or which order they go between servers, everyone ends up seeing the same picture of the world that everyone else does. Um, and so that, that was kind of the key insight into hubs, where we then started working on this, uh, this network. We, I think we started this about a year and a half ago, and, or maybe two years ago now. And about April of last year, actually launched the first hubs, moved all the data from V1 to V2 over, um, and the hubs have been working since then. And it's actually been cool to see. There's, there's, last I checked, there are almost 700 different hubs being run all over the world that each store an entire copy of all of the data on the Farcaster network. And, you know, we've had some growing pains, but for the most part, it's scaled reasonably well through all of this growth and, you know, serving a few hundred thousand users um, without many issues. That's incredibly cool. 
Well, one thing that makes me think of is you're kind of both building a product and a protocol at the same time. And you kind of have, you have multiple key stakeholders in this ecosystem, right? One being users and the experience they're having across both Warpcast, but other applications. But then the other key constituency is developers that you're talking about. So when you're, um, and this actually, I mentioned, I, I pinged a few mutual friends to see if they had questions for you. And one of them that, that Rob, uh, Rob Widoff said, who I think you worked with pretty closely in Coinbase, yes. he, he said that uh, he, he was, and I'm also curious how you think about kind of type one versus type two decisions and either, you know, one-way doors versus two-way doors, because I imagine that there are many such decisions to be made as you're building this complex multifaceted system. And some of them, you know, I, I don't know if the, maybe the architecture of the consensus algorithm and the data structures, I would have imagined in some ways that that's a type one door, right? Where you're like, this is a big, deep thing that we're deciding. But even there, I think you've kind of demonstrated that midway through, you can notice that it's hard for, it's, it's hard for developers to index all of this data and, and you know, you, you kind of realize that you can re-architect that core system. So I'm curious, like, how is this something that you think about as you're developing the, the product and the protocol? And what are, what are maybe questions that you're still uh, pending on, that you're, that you're open to changing how you think about them? Totally. No, it's, it's a really important distinction and something we think about a lot. Um, I think there are decisions, and typically these tend to be protocol-level decisions that are very, very hard to reverse. I mean, nothing is truly impossible to reverse. Given enough time and energy, you can change anything. But as the network gets larger, certain things ossify and become like nearly impossible to retrofit onto an existing design. And then there are other decisions that end up being much easier to change. You can change them on the scope of days or weeks or months and so on. Um, we learned this the hard way because a lot of the original V1 protocol designs we shipped, and then we were like, crap, this doesn't actually work the way we wanted it to. The developer experience or the user experience is suffering. And we went back and changed it. And changing that in 2021, when the network was a couple order magnitude smaller, was a lot easier than it would be changing them today. So, so we are still very thoughtful about what type of decision are we making when we go and try to do these things. And the framework that we've adopted is um, it is far cheaper to prototype something in a at the application layer than it is at the protocol layer. And it is better to fail fast at the application layer before you bring something into the protocol layer. So one, one shift in decision-making, early on, we would always build protocol first and say, how do we make this decentralized and ship it and then go and like launch it in the application. And we've realized that like with social in particular, it is more likely that you are wrong about what users want than say when you're building like a financial system where it's easier to know what people want. And so the flexibility of changing your mind is actually super important. So as, as an example, one of the things we've been working on channels, we actually started uh, in a semi-decentralized manner where channel data was like available on the protocol and you could see it. But some of the moderation features, we weren't sure about the shape of those features. We prototyped a lot of them in the Warpcast client. And now kind of as it's solidified and as we've, we're starting to get to a point where like, okay, this feels good. We then switch into like, okay, now let's decentralize this. Let's make this like that difficult to change decision because we have high conviction that this is what users want and this is the shape of the feature that, that needs to ship. And so I think that that's actually been an important fundamental shift. We were always very protocol first 
And now we are very like application first in terms of test it out here, learn quickly, fail fast, and then turn it into a protocol feature if you think it's right. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense. And it's also, it's a really nice byproduct of like ability that you have because you're, you're active on both layers of the stack and why it's so helpful for, for, you know, Merkle manufacturing to be building both, contributing to both of these at the same time in the early days of the protocol. Yeah, I, I think that's actually been the single most important decision we've made is I, there is this philosophy of like, hey, if you build a protocol, people will come and build apps on top of it. And I think that is true for some types of protocols and some types of use cases. But if you think about what it takes to build a really good social app, like if you look at how much time Warpcast has taken so far, I would say we probably put in something like 20 person years uh, of time into getting this to where it is today. And if we had That's not wild. made those mistakes and hard decisions along the way, we wouldn't have been able to influence the protocol design in the right way. We would have sort of been waiting for other people to figure it out and tell us. And other people wouldn't have done it because they would have been like, well, this protocol has a bunch of issues. Why am I going to waste my time building on something that I don't like? So kind of feeling the pain of the developer on day one has been probably one of the best decisions we've made. Uh, looking backwards at all the things we've done. How how do you think about what ultimately belongs in the protocol? So something like channels, let's say. Um, I I you know with with something like a social network, I feel like there are so many different textures and flavors that it can take, right? And and um, different ways of interfacing with the core kind of underlying data. Um, so how how do you think about that? It, it's a really good question, and I, I think the like we kind of start with the framework of sufficient decentralization, which has like, I think two tenets. Uh, the first tenet is a user should never lose access to their audience, even if they lose access to a specific application. They need to be able to leave app A, go to app B, and still be able to connect and broadcast to at least the majority of their users. And the sort of corollary to this is that developers should always be able to reach their users. There shouldn't be any intermediary between a developer and their users, and it's possible for any developer to build an app that any user can jump on board and use. And these two things kind of go hand in hand, right? You can't have one without the other. And so one of the litmus tests that we apply is that like, well, is that true today? And if not, what is the biggest factors making this not true today and how do we decentralize them? And you know, if we were to take a good, honest look at Farcaster today and kind of apply the lens of sufficient decentralization, I would kind of walk through the criteria saying, okay, uh, do users own their identities, their usernames, and their followers? I would say we're like a solid four out of five on that, which is we have the contracts decentralized. Um, we have people owning stuff in the self-custodial wallets on their phones. And so everyone's in control. The, the last one out of five would come with decentralization of control, where we actually have some sort of council that owns the ability to like pause the contracts and things like that. But for the most part, nobody can take stuff away from you. So that feels pretty good. Level two is do developers have access to data? And I think with hubs, we're in pretty good shape where most data, even channel data, is all available on the hubs. Developers can get it, have access to it. Again, I would give us a four out of five there because I think there's some channel metadata that hasn't made it down there yet, but pretty decent so far. The next criteria I would say is like, can people switch applications? And I would say the honest answer right now is Warpcast is the single biggest app that has the most features and there, there's no great alternative to switch to. A lot of folks are building apps, like Supercast doing a lot of great stuff. I know of at least two other teams that are still building early clients and they're gonna get there, but they're not there today. And I'll actually unpack why that is because I think there's a few important reasons there. 
Um, and then the last one is, is the network decentralized in terms of governance and control, i.e., if Dan and I were to disappear tomorrow, would people continue making good product decisions and protocol decisions that evolve the network? And on that one, I would say maybe a two out of five or three out of five in that we have the talent, but we haven't ever had to exercise that muscle. And that's going to be something that's important for us to build to, to ensure that the protocol is long lived and not tied to any particular set of humans. Um, but if I could dig into the, the like channel, the, the client question a bit more, which is I think what you were asking about, I think the main reason that other clients don't exist is one, it's a significant amount of time and energy to build one. Like I said before, it was like 20 person years of time. We had to raise a decent amount of money. It's a big investment for anyone to make, especially on a protocol that has a very small user base. And so we had to sort of have the conviction to go out and build the user base. And I think now that we've reached a certain scale, other folks are taking notice and saying, okay, I might actually be able to do something here. The, the second answer is you also have to figure out a go-to-market strategy for your client. Even if you succeeded, so let's say like, you know, Warpcast spent 20 person years building this, but we made a lot of mistakes along the way. If you just kind of look at it and clone it, you could maybe do it in a 10th of the time. You could maybe have two really sharp people that just sit down for a year and get to 80% of where we are. But what's your pitch to users? Um, it's like, hey, this is the same thing, but 80% there. That's not very appealing to people, right? You either need to have your own acquisition strategy where you are able to like convince users to join Farcaster through a channel that, that doesn't exist, or you need to be building something different or complementary to Warpcast where it's like, hey, you use Warpcast for X, but a, a set of people want to do Y, and they're actually going to come over here and do this. And I think Supercast making the bet on power user features and things that we're like less likely to build into our client and saying, so we're sort of a complementary app. So you actually need this sort of like distinct strategy in the early days when the pie is small. And then as the network grows, you can maybe be more directly competitive with each other in the same way that like, you know, Gmail and Outlook kind of compete with each other. But, but the last three things that I think are also important for clients are um, there's three problems that I think we need to solve that are top of mind for Dan and me uh, as the Farcaster protocol this year. The first one is decentralizing the metadata around channels, particularly the administrative stuff of how you moderate channels and how channel hosts um, set up uh, structures for control and governance and being able to do stuff within their channels. This is all largely in Warpcast today, uh, even though the channel data is all on chain and we wanna actually move that on chain at some point. I think this is reasonably straightforward. There's just a few product decisions we need to make and some time developing the contracts and we feel pretty good about getting this there. The second one that's like slightly more nebulous is, is how clients will deal with spam. And this is actually a very interesting problem. Um, there's a set of content that is just going to be created on the network that most people don't want to see. It's from people posting things that are irrelevant, people just trying to engagement farm and other things. And it's an important part of the experience that people don't have to deal with spam in their feeds. Like if you're a famous person and you post something on Twitter, you get just like bombed by all these bots. And it's starting to happen on Farcaster too and on Warpcast because the network is getting more popular. But there's also sort of a darker side to spam prevention, which is let's say everyone on the network decided to use the same algorithm uh, to identify a spammer and any algorithm will have false positives and you now you're effectively kicking someone off the network unilaterally. So actually having everybody have potentially a different spam filter in the same way that Gmail's filters are different from Outlook's filters might actually be a net positive thing for the network, but we don't want to say every client you have to start from scratch and train your own ML model from day one and evolve it. We want to have some sort of baseline where which you can start and evolve your own models. So this one I think is, I say it's a little more nebulous, but our thesis is 
there's likely infrastructure companies like Nanar, which is building a lot of infrastructure for Farcaster that will offer spam detection and prevention that you can fine tune to what you want. And there will be different models that work across different clients. And that's likely the way that spam gets solved at the ecosystem level. Very similar to email, um, but, but with more platform providers. And then the last one I think is direct messaging. Um, I think we've come to believe that direct messaging is like a core part of a social application. Like it's, it's an important second channel to continue conversations and do things. And there's a particularly interesting problem here, which is not only do you need direct messaging, you need them to be multi-client, meaning I need to be able to message you from client A to client B, um, and I need all this to work seamlessly. And the side effect of that, which I think a lot of people don't appreciate, is you need end-to-end -end encryption to do that safely. Because think about a world where that doesn't exist, right? So most messaging on Twitter is not end-to-end -end encrypted, at least the default version. And most people are fine because I trust that Twitter has built apps reasonably well and, and yada, yada. Even when you use Signal, you, you trust Signal because you're like, I know that when I message you, your Signal app is the same as mine and it runs the same code and it does encryption well. But if you're using a completely different app, or even worse, let's say you and I use the same secure Farcaster app to talk and it's great. But then tomorrow I go connect some like shady app that does the encryption poorly and ends up leaking all of the data, your conversations are not public. And so there's this sort of implicit trust assumption that we have that I'm not using now or in the future different applications, which I think makes it very hard. So we have to kind of rethink the trust model for how all of this works um, and work on a new sort of protocol for how people can communicate that effectively. And I don't think anyone has really cracked this problem today. Everyone so far has been kind of comfortable with the single client paradigm. And so most of the apps that you use, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, um, Signal, which have encryption, all kind of rely on that security model. And I think we can't rely on that in, in sort of a Farcast or multi-client world. So this problem, again, it's solvable, but it requires a lot more research and engineering. Like we took one shot on goal to do it a year ago and spent like a year trying to build a really, really good encryption protocol. and we did it with you know one engineer one year's worth of time and i think we realized we probably need to invest about 5x as much uh to wow. get the actual protocol that we want and so we decided to say hey let's take a step back let's launch simple unencrypted messaging on warpcast see how it works understand the shape of the feature and then go back and take a bigger shot on goal once we know how it feels and how it interacts with the rest of the system wow Okay, you, you said a whole bunch of things, so maybe we'll go back, but maybe continuing the thread with direct messaging, it's, it's, it's true that this is, a, this is an entirely new case, right? It's, it's, it's even different than Signal, like you said, because even though that's end-to-end -end encrypted, you're both using the Signal app and you both know that this is developed by this trusted third party that you can both rely on. So... It's also a it's also a very good example of like the hardcore research and engineering problems you're having to solve that are way beyond what a traditional social network would have to do, right? Like there is a whole set of distributed systems problems you had to solve with the hubs, and now you're working on end-to-end -end encryption in this un untrusted environment. So maybe in a way that doesn't get super kind of deep in the weeds of the cryptography but that would that would be interesting and maybe nerd snipe a bit of a technical audience uh what what can you share about what what the contours of this encryption protocol look like like how what are what are like interesting ideas that you're thinking of involving to solve this problem so i i think there, there's kind of two decisions to be made one which is technically complex and interesting and one which is actually 
not that technically complex, but perhaps even more challenging because it is a sort of social security problem. Uh, not social security, but like a social engineering problem. So the first one is how do you encrypt data as it goes back and forth between devices? And um, there, there's a lot of different ways to do this, right? Signal has the double ratchet protocol, which I think has been the gold standard for security. WhatsApp uses it as well. It's worked really, really well. It's a fairly complex protocol in the mechanical sense. Like it is, as far as cryptographic protocols go, it is reasonably easy to explain to another cryptographer how it works. But from an implementation perspective, there's a lot of fanciness that goes on when you are doing the ratchets and sending messages back and forth and encrypting stuff. So first challenge is we need to pick a protocol. And I think you have a good YouTube video that describes this, right? On the Farcast yes. channel. Yes, this, this is one of those explanations that is uh, a lot easier with stick figures and little circles and diagrams that I have a video true. that kind of walks through the details. But keeping it a little more high level, I think challenge one is pick your encryption protocol and how you want to do encryption. And the part that is important is end-to-end -end encryption so that you don't have to trust any of the servers in the middle. You're simply trusting the users at their devices that they have the correct uh, bits of data. And so this protects against a bad implementation. Let's say someone like did someone made a mistake on their server, got compromised or whatnot, you're still protected because your messages were encrypted and decrypted on your mobile device. And so the server in the middle has no impact on how your encryption works. The second problem is you also have to guard against either an unintentionally poorly written encryption thing. So, you know, you might have a mobile app that implements double ratchet and then logs all the details to some cloud system by accident and then you know inadvertently exposes your data or something that's just straight up malicious trick a user into like connecting this application and now they have part of this conversation and th this is like not really a cryptographically solvable problem right it's like you're taking your data and you're literally giving it it's to like social engineering attacks exactly and so we've been we, we don't have like a great like hey here's the answer for this but the the, the couple of things that we've been thinking about are one uh, you can actually design the encryption thing to prevent older clients or prevent newer clients that join the conversation from getting older history. So you can basically say, hey, when the encryption happens, it's encryption to device A, device B, and device C. But device D, my iPad that I haven't added yet, will never see the messages, will only get messages going forward. So that's one level of purpose. The second thing you can do is you can make it transparent to users what client each person is using. Because we actually have this sort of notion of like application IDs in Farcaster land, each application has their own identifier, just like a user would. You can actually require certain messages to be signed or countersigned by the application. And then you have a high degree of trust that, you know, I'm using uh, Warpcast and you're using Supercast. And we both trust these apps and we're comfortable with using them. But the moment I go and add, you know, uh, untrustworthycast.com, you get a notification and then you can make your decision about whether or not you want to, to evolve that. And, and so it's, it's sort of more like revealing more information to the user so they can make a good decision and guiding them or even making that decision for them when possible. And that's, I think, the fuzzier aspect of it uh, that we also need to nail down that's important um, for getting this design to work really, really well. How are you going about thinking through these research problems? Like, are, are, you, are you kind of fully solving them internally within your team? Or do you feel like you're part of a peer group of other projects that are grappling with similar sorts of questions that, that you're in conversation with? Um, I think a little bit of, of both, right? Like one, we stand on the shoulders of the giants who built all of this stuff, like Signal built the double ratchet protocol. There's a lot of great open source encryption work that we can all leverage, which makes stuff that we're doing today would have been like a team of 50 people 10 years ago. And now it's like, you know, two engineers can actually go and tackle this. 
second is we've actually gone and found some really, really good people uh, who have a lot of depth of expertise on this and can work on it. So Cassie on our team has, does a lot of our cryptography. She was a Coinbase before, worked on a lot of cryptography there, and is one of the deepest people in the space that I've worked with. And she brings a lot to the table in terms of like being able to implement a lot of these like very, very low-level cryptographic primitives. Um, and three, we, we, we try to reach out to and work with other folks in the industry. I think for V1, we actually tried to not make it a research problem and really take things that we considered off the shelf and construct the encryption with that. So like, don't try to invent your own crypto. I think what we realized was that like, we have a slightly larger problem that did that signal and others don't really have. And so we are going to have to invent some new mechanisms. And so when we go back at it, we, we, explicitly said we're going to go back and solve DCs in the second half of this year and the first half of next year. And when we go and do that, I think we're going to be very laser focused on um, how do we solve the second part of the problem, which is a little more research oriented. Makes a lot of sense. So maybe, maybe rewinding to another point that you raised, which was about new clients building on the network. And how these clients would benefit from potentially going after orthogonal use cases or having different go-to-market. Uh, I'm curious, when you think about the Farcaster protocol and ecosystem, how wide is your aperture of the types of applications that you think will build on this, just in your own mind? Like, do, you, do you think of this as primarily a social networking protocol um, and I guess social networking can be very broadly defined too. Like is Google Maps social networking? Is, uh, I don't know, Spotify social networking? Like, I don't know, how, how, do you, how do you think about what sorts of applications ultimately use this communication system under the hood? Yeah, no, it, it's a really great question. So I'll talk about what Farcaster is today and where we think it can go to in the long run. So today, Farcaster is a, you know, single opinionated social network. It is like Twitter in a lot of ways, but borrows some elements from Reddit and maybe like some small elements from other social apps and kind of combines it together. But it is a sort of single faceted social network that combines your identity, um, has direct messaging and has a lot of these features. What we want to evolve it to or the broader vision is we think people will build many kinds of social networks on Farcaster, and Farcaster will eventually become what we think of as, and I use this term a little tongue in cheek, uh, a Turing complete social protocol. Not in the literal sense of Turing completeness, but in the sort of uh, metaphorical sense of you can build any kind of social network you want by reusing the building blocks that Farcaster gives you to launch like orthogonal social networks. And, and the key insight here is that like, Right now, we sort of assume that everyone is on the same network. They all have the same follow graph. They all want to see the same content. But if you have different social networks, um, people don't necessarily want to do that. Like what, what you post on LinkedIn is not what you post on your Instagram, is not what you post on your Facebook. Those are very different bifurcated networks. And so for Farcaster to eventually do this, I think there's a few problems it has to solve. The first being this idea of segregated like or separated spaces where you're like, hey, this is for app A, this is for app B. I have different identities here, here, and here. But to reuse all of the infrastructure we've built for storing and propagating and synchronizing social data under the hood to make sure that your content stays in sync uh, and that it's available to all of these applications. The, the second sort of interesting bifurcation is uh, public versus private, where if you think of social networks, you have Twitter and Reddit are very public social networks. You post with the intent that everyone in the world reads them. There's very little expectation of privacy for the things that you say because you want them to be read by as many people as possible. 
Facebook, Snapchat, maybe sit on the opposite side of the spectrum where privacy is deeply important and you expect your interactions to only be read by your close friends by default. And being public is more the exception than the norm. And so to, to be able to solve some of these other use cases, I think it's actually also important to have this encryption that we just talked about for direct messaging also be a core part of how all data is propagated on the network, um, which is a, a much harder problem than even getting direct messaging, right? Because there's, there's a lot of bells and whistles to be to be sort of dialed in. Um, and so, so I think we eventually want the building blocks for Farcaster to be composable and reusable for other people to even launch different kinds of social networks. But in order to get to that vision, we need to launch like one social network first that is actually successful and gets things right. And that's what we're laser focused on today. And if we feel like we've nailed that, I think we want to get to this grander vision of like, hey, other people who want to build social networks can reuse the FID building block, the namespace building block, the storage building block, and compose their own networks off to the side. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's also why I think cryptography is a core competency, and it makes it makes sense that you're building that in-house. And um, it also makes me think that in some ways, a lot of the distributed systems that we've all been working on, at you know, they're 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 all talking about sharing data across identities on the internet at some level of abstraction, you know. Ethereum's doing this, Farcaster is doing this, and they're all kind of, they're, they're each optimized around an individual use case. But I think what's truly unique about the Farcaster um, protocol is that, yeah, I think it's, it's, the, it's the social graph that forms between these identities, right? And that's, that's, that really holds a lot of value. No, I, I mean, I think that's, that's spot on is I think very few other distributed networks that really go after the problem of I want to build sort of relationships between you and your friends and make it so that, or you and people that you care about on the internet and make it so that you get more and more um, interesting stuff based on who you follow and what you do. And I think that that's kind of the core problem Farcaster is trying to solve today is to be your public interest graph where you can go and declare to the world, here are the people that I care about, here's the stuff that I'm interested in, and people can build applications on top of that to give you things that you're interested in and make that actually useful for you. Yeah. Into the Bytecode is sponsored by Privy. One of the biggest problems we're grappling with as builders working on crypto-enabled applications is how to make the right trade-offs between user experience on the one hand and security and privacy on the other hand. How do we promote self-custody and ownership while letting the application shine rather than the crypto behind it? So Privy plays an important role here. They provide simple onboarding so anyone can connect to your app easily by allowing them to sign in with an existing wallet or by making it easy for you to provision a new self-custodial wallet for them, linking to social logins like Google, Twitter, or Discord. I personally have faith in Privy because of the team. Henry Stern, who's one of the co-founders, was previously on an episode of this podcast. So you can listen to that conversation for more of a deep dive. And he and his partner, Asta Lee, have been thinking about data privacy and security for a long, long time. And you can see this in the level of thought they're putting into the product. So if you're working on a new product and thinking about how to reach a wider group of users without compromising on either user experience or privacy and security, then I encourage you to check out Privy at privy.io. Okay, so maybe this is a good transition point to, um, you talked about developers being able to reach users at all times. 
which is one of the ways in which a decentralized network like this is fundamentally different than kind of traditional social networks that are out there in the world. And maybe this ties into the one of the latest Future Fridays you had, which was Frames, which, you know, on the surface might seem like a, you know, it's a pretty simple primitive, ultimately, as you kind of explained, there's, there's not that much, you have an image, you have a few buttons, you know, it shows up in the feed. Uh, how, how did this idea come about? And why do you think it could be an important building block going forward? So it, it's a good question. And I think like, we thought frames was going to be cool when we launched it, but I don't think we predicted just how big it would get even internally. And the, the key insight for us, like what frames has done is two things. Um, one, it's, it's, it's a very simple app. It's like you said, it's a picture and buttons and you click a button and it potentially shows you more pictures and more buttons. But the, the key insight is when you click that button, you are actually getting a signal that the person who clicked it is actually a specific person. Like this is actually Alice who pressed the button. And because Farcaster's social graph is public, you're able to learn a lot about who Alice is that she has publicly put online and actually do things based on that. So you can give Alice an NFT or you can do something if she was an active user, a follower of your channel or uh, had NFTs previously minted by your product. And so that was the big unlock is like, it's actually tying identities into this interaction in a very simple and easily usable way. The, the second thing was that you also get a lot of distribution. So because Farcaster had actually built up this audience and we had several thousand people who all had identities and had feeds and were subscribed to people, when you posted a frame that was really interesting, it spreads really, really quickly and gets in front of users um, in a way that you can't get through other channels in, in, realistically. Otherwise you have to convince people to come to your website and do something and they're not on your website. Like, you know, but if you build a frame, your entire audience is everyone who's currently using Farcaster today and you can build it in a few lines of code, which is this really, really powerful thing. The third thing that I think has also been really important is we also had a like fairly rich ecosystem of developer tools. So Nanar, Airstack, there's a bunch of companies that have been building APIs to make accessing Farcaster data super, super easy. So even if you're not technical enough to run your own hub or you don't want to spend the time and energy doing it, you can use these very high level APIs to quickly get information and build stuff. And that allowed a lot of composability on frames. So while frames are sort of like the top of the iceberg, this very simple idea, there was this, all of this infrastructure that had to exist before that actually made frames take off in a way that I don't think it would have if we had launched this a year or two ago. Uh, it would have had a very different outcome because those pieces didn't quite exist. And the, the, the first part of the question you asked was sort of like, what is the synthesis of frames or how do we come about this idea? Uh, I, I think it's interesting. We spent, like Dan and I spent a little bit of time reflecting and being like, okay, how did we find this? And how do we make sure that if there are more ideas like this, we definitely find them. And I, I think it's, it's equal parts experimentation, judgment, and a little bit of luck. Um, so I think the experimentation part is, uh, Dan actually built this feature a while ago or, or thought about this, which was we were getting a lot of people trying to share NFTs in the feed and they were showing up like kind of in not interesting ways as like these open graph previews. And so he had this like cool idea to say, hey, what if we let, you know, NFT websites add these little HTML meta tags? And if we see this, we'll actually like give you a little bigger preview. We'll link to your website so you can go mint it. And it was a very simple, it was almost like static frames you could think of. They didn't have the interactivity, but they changed the previews. And what we noticed when we shipped that was, I, th I think we did it for Zora. 
first, if memory serves right. But within like a three days, everybody else who had NFT marketplaces were like, well, we could integrate that and that would be good for us. Like, you know, and everyone just shipped it. And so it was this moment of like, oh, these these meta tags and web pages seem really special. It feels like if you can just add more context and more information, everyone can super easily integrate them and everybody wants to integrate something that gives them more distribution. And so that was kind of the first spark, but we, we didn't really evolve that into frames for a while. I think the second thing was um, we were thinking we were thinking a lot about like, you know, what do we want to do on the protocol to drive distribution? How can we make it easier and easier for developers to build apps? And we had for a long time focused on building clients. And we realized that like the majority of people are not going to go and build their own client. They want simpler, easier, more fun things to do in the same way that if you built on the Facebook app store back in the day, um, you could easily get like a cool little game or app in front of people. And we were like, what is the thing that we can do that makes this work? And I think the third thing was also a little bit of luck where um, we were running out of things to do on the protocol. And I was worried that folks on the protocol team would be getting bored. And I was like, okay, we got to go find something to work on this week. And so we had this brainstorm and put a list of ideas together. And we called it widgets in this first iteration. But this idea of widgets kind of cropped up. And we were like, okay, maybe it would be cool to spike on this. And after talking about it for a day, I think everyone got really excited about it. Um, it was this moment of like, oh, there actually feels like there's something that could be cool in there. And we just said, let's ship like a really fast version of this in a week and see what happens. We built the basic prototype. We talked to a couple of folks. So I think Bountycaster, Gallery, uh, and Once Upon were all like, oh yeah, we'd build on this. It was, it was actually one of the first features where I reached out to a bunch of people and we're like, we're shipping this tomorrow. Do you want to build on it? And everyone said yes. Uh, and that was a really good sign. And we launch it. And the coolest thing is before even some of these launch partners who had been working with us on it get their versions out, like new people were actually integrating it into their apps. Like Colin and Paragraph like launched stuff before even the official apps or the official people that we worked with launched. And that really felt like something special. And we were like, okay, this feels like the right combination of easy to use, easy to get distribution, and sort of a new interactive primitive that people can play around with. Totally. Yeah, it's such a deceptively simple idea. And I feel like what you say about the developer having access to the identity and the kind of the graph around the person who clicked the button is real. And though I think in some ways, like people, people could, people could get that by building independent applications on top of the same, like that doesn't describe all that there is to this idea. There's also something about it just being in the feed and the fact that you've just like injected code into this like social arena that we're all hanging out in, which is a very kind of trippy idea when you think about it. Like applications can now go viral, which they have, right? There's mints that people put out that in like a minute, the mint like fully sells out. Um, and this also was making me think of like Farcaster as the, you know, the decentralized social network is one way to think about it, but another framing could be it's the programmable social network. Because, like, you, you can't do this in other places. No, totally. I mean, it, it's almost like it was a very old idea in terms of Facebook explored this back in, you know, the 2010s with their app surface. And they actually let you build all these rich applications that would show up, not in your feed, because I think this even predated the Facebook feed, but in your sort of wall, if you remember those days of Facebook. Yeah, totally. Um, but I, I think what eventually ended up happening is for a variety of reasons, like one, uh, they let you do a lot of complicated stuff with the apps. Like it was actually a programmable app. Ours is like very simple meta tags. And that I think was difficult to manage because if you give 
If you allow too much creativity and freedom, it actually becomes really difficult to implement that in a performant way on mobile. So one of the reasons why we did frames and kept frames simple was like, we actually need this to be fast in the feed. If we give you the ability to draw crazy stuff and actually build an app, that would just kill your feed as you're rendering and scrolling and it would be really bad for perf. But if we give you, I mean, literally just markup images and buttons, that's a much simpler thing to render. And you can kind of like, the constraint actually lets you do a lot of cool things with it and display it in places that you wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. Um, which I think is the, you know, in hindsight is the thing that makes frame really work to your point is that it goes to people where they're already spending their time instead of making them jump out, download something, set something up and go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So thinking about Facebook back in the day and I mean, Facebook today and these other social networks that are around today, like I continue to think that these are some of the most creative, agile, like effective business builders in the world, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg is not a novice at thinking about strategy and counter positioning and defensibility. And like he's, he's evaded multiple death blows to Facebook in the past. And I feel like Twitter is probably the same way. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how, how do you think they think about something that's as strategically orthogonal as what you're doing is to how they're operating? Because it, it could almost not be more different, right? Like they, like, while X is shutting down all sorts of external access to the feed and not even letting you post a Substack link to forget about having your audience available to yourself or like running code that you want. Like you can't even have like a particular link to get a piece of your audience to go read something else. So it's, it's like diametrically opposed to the ideas that we're talking about here. So how, like, how do you think these two go head to head with each other and how does this evolve over time? Um, I, I mean, I, I think it's a really good question. And like, you know, both Twitter and Facebook have at their helms now, like two really phenomenal entrepreneurs who are inspirations in, in very different ways. Uh, but, you know, Mark building Facebook early culture and Elon now at the head of Twitter, like driving it forward. I, I think the, the sort of interesting thing is like the problems that they are focused on are, I believe, very different from what we are thinking about today in terms of, I think, the existential question that Facebook is asking itself is how do we get on video, which is where TikTok is doing really well, and how do we effectively compete on this front, which which is existential for them. I mean, I think a lot of like a lot of the people I know who are teens or younger like don't have Facebooks. They're all on TikTok. They're all spending their time there, and video seems to be the primary form of communication, not text or audio. And and Twitter, I think, is is working on a different sort of problem space of like trying to become this everything app and bring people into the app. And and their strategy is hey. We don't want you to ever have to leave our app. We want you to come here, build on this, and create stuff here. And, and that's that's kind of the, the ethos about Twitter. And, and I think the reality is both of those networks will continue to be su very successful with their strategies for a long time to come. I think they're going to retain a lot of users, and they're going to do very, very well. I think what we're trying to do with Farcaster is fundamentally different. We're trying to predict where technology is going to take us 10, 20 years from now where we think decentralization is inevitable. It's just a matter of timing and when it will happen. And we're trying to build a network that, A, designs to people who also agrees with that ethos and say, like, hey, I want to be building or creating my audience on a decentralized network where I have control because this is important to me, but also trying to find some market that is underserved 
by both of these groups and by all the other social network groups up there. Because to your point, like a small startup can't go head to head and compete with the Twitter. I mean, the network effects are really hard. They will just outcompete you. They will just outbuild you. But what we can do is find a small group of people whom Twitter is or Facebook are serving, but maybe not serving as well as they could be and say, hey, we built this space in this community where this is really focused on everything that you care about. Decentralization, on-chain actions, all of these are first-class primitives. And our hope is that we will build another parallel social network where this ends up being a really fun place for people to spend their time and may bring some of them over to spend more time uh, on Farcaster than they do on Twitter than on Facebook. So I think our strategy is to be complementary and for some set of people to actually be more interesting because of the types of things that they do, uh, which end up lining up with the types of things that we focus our app and our network on. Why, why do you think decentralization is inevitable? Like if you take a 10 to 20 year time frame, why do you think that ultimately wins? I think so. I think in the context of social media in particular, so uh, sort of my history with social media, like back when I was in college, like both Facebook and Twitter had a very important influence on my personal trajectory in different ways. Uh, Facebook, because I started building apps on the early Facebook platform. I built this little app called Moocher that would show you a calendar of all the free food that you could get on campus. And so if you wanted to live on pizza for a week, it sucked it all up and let you let you get it. Great um, name. But, but it was this moment. Yeah, but it was this moment of like, oh, like I'm not that good of a programmer. I don't know how to get like an audience, but I, in, with a little bit of PHP, was able to hack together this website that got a lot of people um, all coming here and using this little thing. It really felt magical and it felt like this lets people be more creative and be more expressive and build things that are useful to other people, which felt like a net good for the world. Twitter was very different in that um, I think I learned a lot about building startups and building companies from Twitter. Like I had no idea how Silicon Valley worked or how startups worked or how any of this. I just knew that I sort of liked working with computers and following the early folks on Twitter, Paul Graham, Chris Dixon, um, all of these people who were posting really, really valuable and high quality advice, like really made me change my career path and decide to go into like building startups and, and coming to Silicon Valley. And so again, it felt like this free flow of information was very, very important um, for for society. It just feels like, hey, this is going to dramatically alter the course of a lot of people's lives, and it's important that this be there. And I think if you look at kind of how social media has evolved over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of fear behind what's happening behind the black boxes, right? Because each of these are controlled by private companies. They have their own interests. And the fundamental thing, I believe, is that incentives drive outcomes. And if your incentive is to maximize profit, it will lead to a certain set of outcomes. And this is not me sort of criticizing social networks. I think on the whole, I'm very optimistic about Facebook and Twitter and still think that on the, on the margin, they do more good for the world than not. But I do think that A, the technology is going to become inevitable. B, these networks are where people get their information. They're, they're, they're sort of replacing news and replacing all these traditional channels of information. And it's going to be important to have multiple points of view, multiple ways for people to see the world. Um, otherwise, you end up with a small group of people having undue influence. And it doesn't matter if you like the people who have the influence today, they might not be the people you like. To, the people you might, don't like might be in power tomorrow, and then it's a much more difficult place to be. And so the idea behind decentralization is I think it makes sure that this public commons or this public square is always controlled by uh, a more neutral force uh, that is operating more in the interests of the, of the public. Yeah, that, um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think... Yeah, I, I for, for what it's worth, also think about this in a similar way, which is 
I think the fact that a decentralized social network allows developers to build on it, um, that alone, I think, is is an you know incredible edge to have. And then the the kind of and then I think the other thing is that as there there is a network effect that's building here, and this network effect will just not it won't stop right it's going to pull more and more people into it and at each at certain points in time different applications will get to the point where they're like okay it makes sense for us to interoperate with this thing and then so rather than fighting against it you join it because because you can join it and be on the same side because there's no gatekeeper so I think there's a really powerful kind of snowball that's starting, and it looks really small right now, but it's going to grow over time. Yeah, I think like that's actually one of the one of the key things we realized early on. This idea that like this credible neutrality makes people much more comfortable building on it. In the same sense, like you can go raise money to build a company on the internet or the email protocol or Ethereum. But you can't really go raise money to build on Twitter or Facebook's APIs today. It doesn't make sense. If you're successful, you'll probably get crowded out or shut out, and nobody will take you seriously. And so having this neutral platform, I think, is really powerful for developers and for smart entrepreneurs to be able to build on top of it. I think the challenge we realized very early on, though, was that the decentralization becomes defensible once you have a network and an audience and a group of people. On day one, it actually makes your life 10 times harder. Because not only do you have to go and acquire your first users, which generally is a very hard problem in social, but you also have to do it while battling all the traditional user experience challenges of how do you set up a crypto wallet? How do you get people to not lose their seed phrase? And all of the stuff that's like an important prerequisite for achieving decentralization. And, and, and so I think trying to find that balance has been, um, has been one of the more important things for us. And it's a balance that I think will evolve as the company and the protocol grows. Yeah. It makes me think of, I think, something Paul Graham wrote. It's in a slightly different context, but I think he was talking about exponentials and how they, you know, there's so much compounding and value that happens the further out you go that it, it's, you can spend, you can put in an, an almost irrational seeming amount of effort up front to get them going because you will recoup that later down the line. And I feel like there's something similar at play here with, Either if you can think of it as an exponential or the network effect, or I think both of those probably to some extent, where uh, there's some virality built into all of this also, that it just like it, you know, if you take a short time horizon there, it probably wouldn't have made sense for you guys to put in 20 person years building the second version of this protocol. You know, but if you if you think about 10 years down the future, then it's a no brainer in a way. Yeah, I think that's a very astute point. And I think like protocols of all kinds, whether they're social networks or whether they're uh, sort of more general platforms like Ethereum, all benefit from the same thing, which is it takes a lot of upfront work and a lot of like decision making to get the ball rolling. But if you're successful and if you build something that people want, then, you know, every mod, every modulo thousand users that you add to the platform becomes easier and easier and easier as the network effects grow and as building on this ecosystem sort of becomes much easier than building anywhere else. I mean, it's the same reason why, you know, the EVM is sort of this core component that like every layer two is now trying to replicate because there's so much tooling for this ecosystem that's been built that it's just like easier to build on the EVM despite, you know, uh, whatever design flaws you disagree with or whatnot. It's just your life is so much easier to build on it. 
Totally. All right. Do you want to switch to a couple more personal topics? Sure. Let's do it. <laughs> Said nervously. So I <laughs> exactly. guess, you know, one thing that I kind of became curious about while you were talking about um, discovering um, tech through Twitter and stumbling across Paul Graham and other folks writing, like how, how did you get into this world altogether? What's, what's kind of your earlier story before you, say, even joined Coinbase or before you, I think your previous company before that also went through Y Combinator. But how, That's right. where did you come from? <laughs> okay, I'll start, start all the way at the beginning, uh, which, which we talked about a little when we first started this conversation, when we talked about the painting. But I grew up in, in Coimbatore in India, which is a, a town in South India in the state of Tamil Nadu. Um, and the interesting thing about Coimbatore, the one little factoid is, it's a it's a textile manufacturing town. Like back in the day when the British set up uh, and and started building industries there, they brought uh, a lot of their a lot of the textile industry there with them. And today, a lot of the city revolves around that. So in the same way that San Francisco is all about tech, if you go to Coimbatore, you'll find people involved in different parts of the textile chain, from you know building machinery to uh, actually manufacturing the clothes or the bed sheets or whatnot, and all along that entire supply chain. But what's interesting was that, like, I think it was a very entrepreneurial city in that, like, a lot of people all aspire to start something and do something because, at least when I was growing up, there weren't a lot of, like, middle management jobs at big companies to be had. Like, everyone had a business of some kind, whether it was the grocery store down the street or whether you tried to do something. Most people tried to start something of their own. And, and that was sort of something that was, like, like baked into me from the very beginning is something that I really wanted to do because it was just what everybody did. Uh, around me or everybody ambitious around me wanted to do that. And I remember, I think this was in the fourth grade where I, I learned what a caterer was and that you could go to the kitchen and make food and then charge people money for it. And I was like, this is amazing. I just want to do this the whole time. And so I spent an entire summer making different family members buy my terrible cooking. Uh, but it sort of made me realize that I like building and creating things and uh, building things that are especially valuable to other people. Like that made me really, really happy. And I knew that whatever I wanted to do, it had it had had some some element of that. And and obviously, because of where I grew up, I thought I would sort of naturally go down this path and do something in the textile space. That's kind of where my family and a lot of other folks worked. But um, the, the sort of trajectory shift was I, I decided to study computer science because I found it uh, really interesting and sort of came to the U.S. and ended up doing this course that was like a little bit of programming, a little bit of more general business stuff and other things. But in the process of going through that, again, like getting into Twitter and finding out about Silicon Valley and the types of things that people were building. Like I was spending a lot of time thinking about the latest things that Google was building or the latest things that, you know, at the time Microsoft was shipping. And I was like, I kind of want to spend a lot more time doing this. This seems way more fun and draws out way more of my excitement than anything else I'm working on. And so through college, I tried to start a bunch of different companies, but like we didn't really know what we were doing. This was out in, in, in Pittsburgh. I was at CMU. And we tried all these little different ideas, like a website for people to upload music, sort of like a SoundCloud before SoundCloud was around. But we didn't really know how to raise money. We didn't really know how to do a lot of those things. And so, you know, towards the towards my last year in college, I started like learning about all of like, you know, Y Combinator, raising money, Silicon Valley and all this stuff and decided that I wanted to come out here and do that and ended up moving to the West Coast, took a job at Microsoft. Uh, learned a ton there working on like office and building a lot of like low level sync algorithms and things there. And I 
got the itch to start something again a couple of years in. And so once once I met a, a co-founder I wanted to start something with, we ended up working on um, something very different from anything else I've worked on, which is uh, building products for people with hearing loss. And we, we did this for a few years, uh, maybe spent three years working on it, went through Y Combinator. A very long story short, it was a good product, but a bad business. And so we ended up shutting it down. Unfortunately, uh, one of our early investors, Gary Tan, um, who sort of been a very supportive influence throughout my time in Silicon Valley, knew that I was into crypto at the time and said, hey, you should really talk to Coinbase if you're thinking about what to do next. And that eventually brought me into Coinbase, which is where I met Dan um, and where sort of the origin of Farcaster uh, came from. Mm. Wow, that's a really cool backstory. So maybe the next question is, and, and a couple of people, a couple of your uh, Coinbase compatriots from back in the day asked this question, which was, what did you, what are the things you look back on as having learned at Coinbase? And what are the things that you're applying today at Farcaster and the things you're actively trying not to do at Farcaster? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. I think, so there were a lot of really important lessons that I learned at Coinbase. I think one is how impactful individuals could be in, in the grand scheme of things. I think early Coinbase had some of the highest density of talent I've seen. And you have sort of these like individual people very early in their career going and building these outsized things like launching Ethereum on the platform or doing all these things that had like, um, that had like a ton of impact. And I think it really like made me realize that like, the team is really what matters, especially in the early days. It, you have to get the right people in the right place and you have to find a team that meshes and works together for it, for it to really work well. The second thing, and this is something that Brian always did really well. I, I always say that like the secret to Coinbase's success, I mean, they did a lot of things right, they picked the right market, but one of the most important they, things that Brian did was never giving up. Like no matter what happened, no matter what bear market we went through, Every single competitor of Coinbase in a bear market would flail. They would go into other industries. They would be doing the same things that we were and then decide and then sort of give up faith, give up hope and just go off to do something else. And the singular reason that we kept winning through every bear market was we just kept building. It was like, this is going to come back. This is an important bet. Like this is going to be here. Let's just stay focused and keep doing things. And I think it's, it's almost this level of stubbornness that I think is, is really, really important to have when you have this idea that you're really passionate and excited about and you want to see it come into the world. It doesn't always mean you'll be successful. You still have to pick the right market and the right place. But I think it is a very important quality, especially when you're building in something like crypto, which is very cyclical. And so that's something that I think Dan and I both internalized when we were at Coinbase and bring to Farcaster. And I, and I think it's honestly been important. I think if I hadn't been through the Coinbase journey and seen the cycles and seen the difficulty and the ups and downs, I don't know if I would have had the determination to continue through the first three years of Farcaster where it was actually a very tough journey. And there were a lot of times when there were ups and downs and it was very difficult to build market share uh, and things like that. So that's sort of the positives. I would say what's one thing we learned from Coinbase and, and maybe try not to do here. Um, so later Coinbase, I think particularly when 2017 happened and when the market really picked up, there was this sort of existential fear of like, we're going to get beaten by better funded, faster moving teams. We need to hire more and we need to grow more and we need to do that very, very quickly. And I think we almost did that to a fault. 
um, where we brought on so many people that the organization really got a lot slower. It's like you would go and add, you go and add 50% more to a team and they would move 50% slower. And you're like, what the hell just happened? And I think we sort right. of learned that like, you can't, yeah, exactly. And so we, we learned that like, you know, there's sort of limitations to how fast you can grow and that with larger teams, you end up trading technology problems for people problems. And it's a very different style of like how you operate as a company. And so one of the core things that Dan and I agreed on when we first started the company was a, it was going to be remote because we started during the pandemic and that was the only option at that point in time. But B, uh, we said that as a result of this, we actually want to really focus on having as small of a team as possible. We don't want to be managing large teams. We don't want to deal with the people overhead. We want to go hire very senior people, many of whom have already been managers and know how to manage and kind of understand how to work together in a team. And we want to just let them do their thing. And that's kind of been like one of the guiding philosophies um, for Farcaster. That's maybe a little different from how we operated at Coinbase in the early days, which is hire very senior, hire very few people, as few as possible. Um, and then go out and try to do things as quickly as possible um, and, and make things like try to click. Mm -hmm. This, you know, when I've kind of been observing Farcat, you know, your team from the outside, one of the things that has stood out to me, you know, and I think it particularly stood out to me during this last month of launching frames and then all the craziness that was happening was how kind of unflappable you were through that, how you continued to consistently ship while the world was going crazy, you know, which is, which is, it's like, it's an interesting thing that, you know, I think most teams would have gotten distracted by all of that noise and been themselves, you know, checking their own social media every day and being like, what's going on? Who else is talking about Farcaster? But just the cadence with which the cadence and the consistency with which you continue to ship through this period to me was really interesting. And I think it it kind of maybe goes to both of these points that you were talking about, which is both the the not giving up, like maybe there's a different var variation on that, which is this almost stoic like this like focus on what you're doing, regardless of what's happening, and then also having a team that is you know that's that's good at what they do and playing at the top of their game and is just going to continue to ship and not you know not be a rookie and start celebrating uh when it's it's in the early days of the game yeah well hey thank you that's very kind to say uh and b we we try i think i think everyone on the team is so most of us have like been through coinbase or have seen other large companies scale and we sort of have this like existential fear baked into us of like we haven't won yet like even with frames even though frames is doing well this is still early innings and these numbers are still rookie numbers relative to any other social media and any other platform like if we want to win we need to be 10 hundred a thousand x from where we are and so while it's good to take a little time to celebrate the bigger picture is we need to do a lot more to actually be successful and we need to get back onto the train and do it and it's actually great to have a team that internalizes that where like we don't even have to tell people. They operate as if that is the way it should be done because they all know that that's the right way to operate when you're building such a high-risk, early-stage company. 
um, which has been great. And, and I think it also helps to have people who have been very experienced with scaling. Like one of the really nice things was some of the folks working on our infrastructure, they'd seen all the battles at Coinbase. And so, yes, we had some downtime and some blips, but they were very experienced in knowing what to do, what levers to pull, and how to stand things up when, when the time came, which was actually tremendously helpful in maintaining our shipping velocity. I think if we didn't have the experience of having done that at Coinbase, it would have been a much tougher journey to keep the site up through all of that. Mm-hmm. When you when you think I'm curious for you personally, um, how you know when um, both you know say over these last few years in the times when it gets tough, because um, I know just having been on the startup journey myself, it it is a roller coaster despite what it might seem from the outside. You know, some people make it look easy or they seem like they always know what they're doing. But I think, you know, having spoken with enough people who are going through this, it's never easy. And there's a kind of internal ups and downs that are always happening. Um, how, and then, you know, and then the consistency of shipping through all of that. How, how do you kind of, as an individual, relate to this? Like, do you, do you find that there are particular ways of thinking about this that you hold or like ways that you aspire to operate that would be kind of illustrative to share maybe? Yeah. I mean, I, I think part of it goes back to that pithy and funny quote, which is we do these things not because they're easy, but because we thought they would be easy. Um, I uh-huh. think there's a certain amount of like, uh, I think building a company is really fun. There are a lot of ups to the roller coaster and there's a lot of stuff that is really enjoyable uh, in the process of creating something. And I think that's kind of what we try to lean into. Um, uh, as we're, as I was like getting into Farcaster and wanting to do it, it was like, oh, it's really, really fun. There's a lot of cool stuff, building a team or getting to code a lot, getting to actually create something and put it in front of people. That's actually very fulfilling. But the flip side of it, sort of as you pointed out, is there are a lot of dark days. There are days when you ship a lot of stuff and you're like, this isn't working. Everything I spent the last six months on is completely useless. That I just burned the last two years of my life on something that doesn't matter. And I think those moments are really, really hard. And it's very important for like anyone working on early stage startup to figure out how to express and cope with that in some sort of constructive way. I think having gone through the journey once, like one of the things that I know is like, it was very important for me to have a, a co-founder um, who I really, really enjoyed working with. I think there are a lot of great solo founders on there and I have tremendous respect for them, but I don't think I could ever do it. This is a journey that I would find very difficult to do alone. And actually like meeting with Dan, working with them for the first few months and finding that we connected, I think it's actually been a really, really good balance. Like it is extremely helpful to have when you're having a really down day to have someone else who's excited and motivated and pushing forward and being able to sort of draw on that energy and apply it to yourself. And I think the same applies for the team as we added more and more people, just having more folks with you on the mission makes it a lot easier to push through uh, some of the some of the tougher times. And I, I think the other thing that I also think about is like, Sometimes it's okay to accept that the bad days are inevitable. Like we, we had this funny saying in, in early Farcaster. When Dan and I first started working, we were like, we, we measure progress by the number of existential crises we have or the frequencies at which we have. Them. And early on, it was like once a week. And I was like, okay, Dan, we shouldn't be freaking out more than once a week on this idea. But it's okay to freak out at least once a week. And as the company has gotten bigger, it's like, okay, now it's once a month. And maybe if we're really, really successful, it's more like, once a quarter or once a year. But I, I think that's part of the process. Like when, when the idea is so early and so fragile, it seems so likely that it will be wrong. 
And, and you kind of have to be okay with that and accept that feeling and just try to work through it every day until it actually takes root or you realize it doesn't work and go do something else. Yeah. Another thing I'm curious about is I saw on YouTube that you had this one video of looking ahead. And I think you'd published it in January 2023. And it was kind of... Um, showing a document that you said you put together every six months to to kind of think about the core priorities going forward for the next six months. And that's a difficult thing. You know, I watching that, what I what I admired and what I think kind of has some explanatory power in why you've succeeded so far is that there's there were very few items on there. You know, there were, there were three bullet points uh, under, you know, Warpcast, three bullet points under Farcaster. And it's incredibly difficult to be this early. And this is two years ago, a year and a half ago that we're talking about now. And to look forward to the next six months and distill down what matters to only three things. Um, so... Yeah, I'm curious what you can share about how how you think about this and planning clarity of thinking what matters in you know especially in the in in the early days when there's so much uncertainty and so much changes all the time. Yeah. No, it's a good question and I think I think it's one of those things where when I look back at all the times I had to make decisions and build priorities lists and chose what to work on, I don't think there was ever a time where the problem was I didn't have enough things on the list. Like 99% of time, it's I am doing way too many things. And one of these things is 100x more important than everything else. Yet I'm giving it, you know, 25% of my time when I should be giving it like 90 or 100% of my time. And having seen that play out enough times and felt the pain from it, I think now it's sort of an intrinsic paranoia that Dan and I have built into the company, which is whatever list we have of priorities, there's probably one thing on here that matters more than anything else. What is it? And why aren't we just doing that one thing? Um, because the reality of it is, is like when you're working in a team and you're working on a product, all the other things will find some way to surface when they're important enough. But but the, the, the trick to finding the lightning in a bottle is to like be able to laser in on that, that one thing that really matters and give it all your energy and all your time. And I think Frames is a really good example of like, hey, that was like probably one of the most important bets for us to have made in January of 2024. And a lot of the other things, while important, we're probably not as important as discovering this this thing and this sort of mechanism for developers to interact with users. And and so I think it's, I actually think it's general advice that like anyone building a startup would benefit from, which is like, everyone should probably be doing fewer things. Most people, most founders and most humans, the natural tendency is to worry about lots and lots of things. And I think a good counteractive force is to like bring focus to that and say like, what is the one thing that I think is going to existentially matter? and spend a decent amount of time trying to figure out what that is, which is actually a hard thing to do, and then focus all your energy on that. And I, I, the, the, the corollary to that is I think you're not always gonna be right, you're gonna be wrong a lot. So like 
be okay with changing your points of view. Like we wrote that looking ahead doc and I said like, Hey, this is what we're going to do for the next six months. And, you know, I think in like February of that year, like a couple months in, we actually changed a couple of those items because we learned. And so it's also this thing of like, you're never going to be perfectly right about the, it is important to have a point of view, even though you know that your point of view may need updating very soon, but having that point of view and updating it consistently and changing your priorities is important, which is one of the reasons I haven't actually uploaded too many more of those videos because we keep writing those docs internally, but they change every couple of months. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to record a video every two months of changing priorities, but internally we keep like this, this very like narrow focus and, and try to stay focused on the top two to three things that matter. So how, how does that happen when it's changing? So you realize that something's potentially more important. Do you, do you then kind of zoom out at two months and rethink through everything from first principles? Or do you kind of leave that until the six month kind of arc ends and you kind of maybe slightly modify one of the goals to be this new thing? I think the, the strategy that we've adopted is to try and be as simple with the process as possible and do it as often as it needs to be done. Um, and sometimes when things are not going well, that may mean changing it every couple of weeks where you go into something for two weeks, you get a bad gut feeling about, I just don't think this is the right thing and you change it. Um, I, I don't have like a great system there other than at this point, I think Dan and I have this sort of intrinsic gut feeling when we are doing something wrong or feel like we're not spending the right time on the right things. Within a couple of days, one of us kind of sits up and goes, I don't feel good about this. And then we're like, okay, let's talk about it. And it might be a three-hour conversation where we just go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth and make a decision. But the output of that is actually very simple. I actually have this, this very simple uh, Apple note that's open with a list of like at most 10 things always stack ranked with the most important thing at the top. And every morning when we go to the team meeting, we start with the very first item and then work our way down. And it's a very simple system, right? If I change my mind, I just juggle things around. There's no like fancy, like well-written essay that you have to go rewrite. You just like shove these points around and then just go focus on it. You're not going to build a to-do app on Farcaster to solve that problem. <laughs> that, that, well, that was the first thing I worked on is I worked on a lot of uh, note-taking and productivity software. So I've already, I've already <laughs> been through that, have the scars. And I'm now like, yeah. okay, keep it simple. You just need a list. Yeah. Well, I think there's something that there's a, there's a sense of comfort that one can find in having a set of priorities that captures everything, like a priority list that has seven items on it. And you're like, if I do all seven of these things, then I'm sorted out. Like everything's in a good place. But that's a that's a false comfort because you actually won't be able to do any of them to the extent that you want to. And I think you're also right that there's probably one of them, one or two of them that matter way more than the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I think I mean, I, I, there are a lot of people who have built a lot of great productivity systems. I've been just terrible at them. And so my best strategy is make your list, start at the top and try to go as far as you can before the rest of the day blows out your schedule. And as long as you're starting with the number one thing, you will probably make more progress than if you did anything else. Great. Okay. And, and last question to close, we're talking about big priorities. What is, what is one thing you're very excited about looking forward with Farcaster? Uh, well, I'm going to bring up my Apple note right here. Um, so I think, <laughs> I, I think the top priority for us, the thing that we are really, really focused on this week, uh, well, this is going to be less exciting. So I'll give you the top priority and I'll give you an exciting priority. The top priority, I think, for us as a team is uh, focused on stability. I think as we've grown a lot, we've had uh, a lot of like, 
things get leaky around the edges. And so a lot of the developers building on the platform have had to deal with longer wait times to get messages, have had issues. And so we've been laser focused on, we need to get that feeling good so that people trust and build on Farcaster. And about a quarter of the team has been spending all their time just like getting that ready, A, stabilizing the current system and B, thinking about, okay, how do we get to the next 10X and what infrastructure do we have to put in place so that if Farcaster keeps growing, we're able to keep all our infrastructure moving. So that is our top priority. I think the most exciting priority on the roadmap, and we've talked about this a little bit, is we want to bring the ability to execute transactions to frames. So frames are, are very simple, right? They don't touch wallets today, which is what makes them fairly safe. They're largely just signature, they're largely just off-chain signatures um, that are produced that validate your identity on the Farcaster network. But one interaction we want to bring is we want to be make it possible so that when you are using a frame, the frame author can actually send you a transaction and say, hey, now you're allowed to mint this NFT. And you're able to take that and move that over to your wallet, you know, whether it's MetaMask or Phantom or Coinbase wallet, and actually execute it right from within that wallet. I think that opens the idea space of creativity of what you can do with frames, because today, anytime you're using a frame to get an NFT or something, the frame author is paying for all the gas to get that to you. And there's a limited set of things you can do with that. Whereas when you have the composability of being able to do any kind of transaction and you have the ability to ask the user to pay for the transaction, the kinds of things you can build are a lot cooler and more interesting. And so that's one of the things we've been trying to dial in and get the user experience really, really right. And hopefully we'll ship in the next couple of weeks. Amazing. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Hey, I'm going to make a small ask here. If you've been listening to these conversations and want to support what we're doing here, I would really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review for the podcast wherever you're listening to it. This might seem like a small thing, but it will really help other people also discover the show. Thank you. I'm grateful to be able to do this and look forward to being here together again soon.